1895, the state of Ohio had only two automobiles. And wouldn't you know it, they collided. <laughs> so, <laughs> who knows what kind of collision we're going to have in the days ahead. If you dare vote for a decree that God finds abominable and murderous, you will answer to him. God's curse is upon you. How dare you? How dare you? defy him. Strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. When is the time for justice? The time is now. I'm tired of waiting for incremental solutions that never make any increments and never bring solutions. So when is the time for justice? It's now. I said to every sinner, God broke the law for love. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. If the court in a nation is the highest authority, then you've found a God. If the people are the highest authority, then you've found another God. If, if there's no transcendent law governing over this nation or any other nation, then you've found another God. It's never too early to learn that the government is a greedy piglet that suckles on a taxpayer's teat until they have sore, chapped nipples. Take the guns first, go through due process second. Please clap. Just as the church has an obligation to be Christian, just as the family has an obligation to be Christian, just so the school has an obligation to be Christian, and the state, and your calling, and the school, every area of life must recognize Christ as Lord and Savior. Welcome to Cross and Crown Radio, an unapologetically Christian reconstructionist talk show for your edification and for your enjoyment. Something we say a lot around here, Jesus is king, there is no neutrality, there is no exile, and there is no surrender. Yes, I'm loving it. Episode three, we made it. We made it. Boy, that first part though, we're going to hit pretty hard today, the no neutrality thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Every episode really is all about neutrality, but this week we're going to hit it hard. All of those are good things to be considering. And I think, Jordan, in the in coming weeks, we want to unpack a lot of that anyway. Yep. Just talking about different topics like God's law. Um, what is God's law? How, how are we going to apply God's law? How should it be applied? It's coming. Yeah. The Theonomy episode. Dun, that's, dun, dun. That's going to be good. Yes, indeed. We are excited about that. Uh, thanks for listening. We are so appreciative of all the feedback. You guys are, yeah, are great. Episode two. We got some great feedback. Episode two. Yeah. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, um, there was an, a number of messages that we got just in feedback and, and actually all positive. So I don't know. We don't have a lot of haters yet, but... Uh, oh, they will come. I'm sure they'll be coming. I'm <laughs> sure they'll be coming. But we actually had one in particular that uh, was just uh, tremendous and it was, quote, life-changing. So... Uh, I just want to share this. So, you know, we, if you were there last time, we were talking about abolitionism, uh, the need to address the fight of uh, abortion at the moment of conception, not at the moment of dilation. And uh, one uh, 
feedback that we got was from a gentleman named Baxter Cambridge, and, and he said, episode two was stellar. It literally changed my life, as I am now an abolitionist regarding abortion. I did not even know there was such a movement, and I'm actually ashamed about my willingness to excuse or concede to justifications of first trimester abortions. Thank you for your edification. Wow. Don't we love that? That's yeah, amazing. Praise God. Praise God. That's, praise that's God. awesome. And it's deeply practical. I mean, this really has everything to do with the, the true ethical judicial line of like, how does God view life? So praise yes. God for that. Amen. Uh, I mean, it, it's obviously it's God's truth. And we're just we're just trying to deliver it as faithfully as possible. But we're, we're also very thankful for that uh, positive feedback. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for, for sharing that. And, and we certainly would love any questions you guys have. You want us to answer on air topics, things like that. You can definitely find us on our Facebook page, Cross and Crown Radio. Uh, we would love to connect with you there. Um, yeah, quick announcement. At the, in an upcoming episode, we're going to be discussing God's law. And in the Theonomy Q&A forum on Facebook, we're already collecting a lot of questions for that episode. And uh, Dr. Garwood, you are going to be fielding questions on Theonomy with the help of myself and, and my brother John over here. And uh, we're going to collect those questions on the Theonomy Q&A forum, and then we're going to address them. Hopefully most of them or all of them uh, live in, in studio. Awesome. That sounds so good. Well, hey, I'm your host, Jason Garwood. This is John over here. Howdy, howdy. And Jordan. Yo. I'm glad you guys are going to be with me on that episode. That's going to get um, interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> there will be some, you know, questions that we're used to answering, and there's going to be some harder ones, and we're going to take all comers. Yeah. And I can tell you, we can use some theonomy up here in Virginia. Oh, man. The Wild West. Or My goodness. It's been <laughs> a fiasco lately. We talked about it a lot last week, and it's only gotten worse. Yeah. So we actually have... Uh, the governor embroiled in a controversy over this blackface, uh, you know, this blackface controversy that he had. And and of course, the, the partial birth, birth abortion, live birth abortion um, comments that he made. And then the second in command, uh, Lieutenant Governor Fair, uh, Fairfax, is in a sexual abuse scandal. And then another third uh, in line, the uh, Mark Herring, who's the uh, Virginia Attorney General, who would be third in line to the governorship also uh, wore blackface <laughs> in wow. his past. So, so the Democrat uh, party here in Virginia is going crazy. And what's funny is the fourth in line to the governorship is a Republican, and he won by a coin flip in the last election. So it's just, wow. as they say in Canada, gong show. I saw, an, I saw a newspaper today, you know, the whole Virginia is for lovers. They said Virginia is for losers. Uh-huh. A little play on, uh, yeah. on our state's but come to Virginia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Clearly, there's work to be done. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, uh, clearly. And there's opportunity. And I, I mean, if they want to appoint me governor, I'll, I'll take care of that. Well, they'll be down to just, you know, average citizens in no time. Yeah, <laughs> we'll take I'll take care of that. You just got to head there and say, look at me. This is my governorship now. I don't and think I'm anybody the, else. Is I'm the governor now. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it from here. That's you guys have done enough. Thank you, man. Well, hey, we have an exciting interview today. Oh, I can't wait. I, oh, yeah. I thought it was a great interview. Um, I think you listeners are going to love it. Um, we got to speak with um, Reverend Mark Rush Juni of Chalcedon and talked about education and his father's work, especially in the homeschool movement. And we also talked about his book, The Messianic Character of um, American Education. And so we think you're going to love that. So that'll be the second half of our show. So we will get to that in due time. But first, we want to set that interview up and talk about something near and dear to Cross and Crown Church, and that is the issue 
of Christian education. Christian education. Just a couple of weeks ago, Donald Trump, our president, tweeted this out. He said, quote, numerous states introducing Bible literacy classes, giving students the option of studying the Bible, starting to make a turn back. Great. Mm, not so great. Well, why would you say not so great? Don't we want the Bible to be taught to people? Isn't that the aim and the objective here? We're trying to disciple the nations after all. Doesn't it make sense that we would promote that? Yeah, there's c clearly a disconnect because what I think is missing is, first of all, an understanding of the origins of the public school system uh, that we have today. Uh, being birthed out of secular humanism, being birthed out of the mind of men like John Dewey and Horace Mann, uh, men like John Dewey who was a secularist and and saw the uh, the propagation of his public school system as a vehicle to advanced humanism, a rival religion. He thought that the religion and the tradition of Christianity and the culture was abs obsolete and not needed anymore, and he wanted to replace it with what he called a common secular faith. And so... Um, I think when we talk about, you know, government schools, public schools, and we think, oh, we just need to put prayer back in the schools, or, oh, we just need to get creationism uh, literature in there, or we need to talk about the Bible, we need to have a Bible class in there. Um, we have to understand that any of that that's going to be presented, first of all, is going to be not done from a, an authoritative, this is the word of God, this is the truth, and that's what the Bible, how the Bible presents itself. It's going to be talked about alongside the Quran. It's going to be talked about alongside of the Iliad and other works of literature. This is a work of literature. And you don't want your child in there hearing about the Bible as just one of many uh, contributions from human literature. Right. You know, and you saw the news, the New Jersey, the state of New Jersey wants LGBTQ history taught in their classes yeah which i don't know if they start with sodom and gomorrah in that historical sketch or not but probably not i'm guessing yeah. that yeah yeah and that is obviously a red flag that that is going on but i think a lot of times uh conservatives get up in arms about the lgbt stuff that goes on in the public schools and and rightly so to some degree but also what about or socialism, you know, the, the socialist framework that is undergirding all of government schools. The, the propagation of, quote, free schooling for all of society is one of the ten planks of the Communist Manifesto. Right. Um, why, why are we worried now? You know, we sort of baby this socialism, um, you know, uh, system and we coddle it and we act like it's not socialist and it is. And then it, it's also humanist and it's it's. It's approaching education by intentionally setting aside the word of God in the pursuit of knowledge. Does that sound familiar? Because that's what happened in the Garden, Garden of Eden, Eden yep. right? Adam and Eve are uh, sort of weighing what God says, weighing what Satan says, setting aside God's word and setting themselves up as the autonomous authority over truth. And that is the very approach that um, that public schools take. It's not just that the facts are bad, that they're teaching false things. It's also just the approach to knowledge itself is so damaging and, it, and it's insidious and it's subtle because it trains a young person's mind after they leave the public school and they go into college that they are the determiner of what's truth. They look at truth and um, you know they are autonomous and they don't start with God's word. They don't start with informing God's word into everything that they do. They've been trained in the secular humanist approach to knowledge, which I think gets lost sometimes. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, that's really good. And I, I guess it would be good for us at this point to maybe dig in a little deeper, dig in a little deeper, figure out some of the philosophical underpinnings of um, education, really as a principle of what, it, you know, we live in God's world. So I, I guess I just have a few thoughts um, on that that I'd love to share. And I, and I think we need to start with this. Really, when we speak of education and the need for Christian education, we're going to throw an adjective on that. So it's not just education. Like you can't just talk about facts. It always has right. to have that context. Yes, there are no brute facts. Right. Brute facts are things that exist um, outside of God. So we wouldn't we we wouldn't say that they that they actually exist. Facts facts presuppose God, essentially. Right. Because the sort of ethos of the public schools is to set up. Well, this is the place for facts and stats. And you can have your religion and you can keep your, you know, your religious views, but don't bring them in here because this is a place for facts. Right. Right. Which brings us to no neutrality. Yes. <laughs> All, right off the bat, we have to remember everything is covenantal and nothing is neutral. Everything is covenantal, meaning that everything is in some fashion or another attached to God's law word, God's ethics. And nothing is neutral, which says the opposite of that. Since everything is attached to God's law word, nothing escapes it's critique. And so education is, is no different. So education, we'll, we'll just call it the pursuit of the knowledge of uh, pursuit of knowledge, right? In God's world is really one cog of a huge machine that we call life. And life itself is, is covenantal and not neutral, which means that even the topic itself has to be understood theologically. Okay. We have grown accustomed uh, in the church to viewing, you know, only certain things through a theological lens while leaving other things to be seen through a humanistic lens. And when you do this, you chop up God's covenantal world, and that's when you start to embrace humanism in things like education. So, in short, because we don't think biblically about this, we create a vacuum, and humanism gladly jumps in to fill the void. Now, one thing we need to remember is that when men reject the incarnation of God, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, right? The fully God, fully man, person of Jesus, they too create a vacuum. And what we end up doing is the state becomes the ultimate expression of divine man. So follow that train of thought. The state will, apart from God's law word, be allowed to set itself up as a savior and Lord and without fail becomes deity walking on earth. And this will always be the case. It's always been the case because fallen men prefer collectivism. And this sinful expression inevitably ends up in, in tyranny. Now, I say all this because in order to achieve this tyrannical collective, men need a system of populating this experiment, right? Tyranny, tyranny too, loves company, even if it's compulsive. In order to stay consistent with its presuppositions, the collective needs this divine continuity of being to basically perpetuate itself. So number one, it means it needs capital. In this case, you know, it needs more people and more money. We'll talk about that. Two, it needs education because we can't go having people think for themselves. People who think for themselves um, become a threat to the state. So the reason the state needs these two things is because the state needs all of life. And since Jesus Christ is King of Kings and he's Lord of Lords and he claims all of life, he must be discarded and eradicated. So understand that we have a rivalry right at the very get-go. Here's Jesus Christ who is Lord. Here is the humanistic and you know government center that needs 
um, people that function apart from Christ. Yeah, I actually have a quote here. It's a, an actual quote from the New Hampshire Supreme Court in 1902. And you, it shows just that sort of mindset. And the quote is, free schooling is not so much a right granted to pupils as a duty imposed upon them for the public good. While most people regard the public schools as the means of great advantage to the pupils, the fact is too often overlooked that they are government means of protecting the state from consequences of an ignorant and incompetent citizenship. I mean, according to them. Mm -hmm. And then in 1914, the U.S. Uh, Bureau of Education uh, released a, a statement and included a quote that said, the public schools exist primarily for the benefit of the state rather than the benefit, rather than for the benefit of the individual. Interesting. So from the very beginning, this was indeed the whole framework. Wow. Well, and that really gets into like spheres of sovereignty and jurisdiction, which is something we'll we'll definitely probably just have an entire episode on. But this completely strikes at the core of self-government. Right. And it, it's by definition tyrannical. Yeah. And go all the way back to Aristotle. It was Aristotle who had statist views on education. And he said basically the state is, quote, the highest good of all and embraces all the rest. So don't miss this. Instead of the church being the polis, the, the city of the true city of God, the state essentially becomes the center of all human life. And because man is then seen as divine, the humanist has to build, you know, some semblance of a foundation. And that foundation then embraces all the rest. That's Aristotle's words. That's the state, this unified collectivist man. And, and even Aristotle, in keeping with all of his presuppositions, he famously stated that man is the best of animals. And he said he was a political animal. And he also said that the citizen should be molded to suit the form of government under which he lives, end quote. So taking it, you know, obviously even further, Aristotle argued, he said this, quote, neither must we suppose that any one of the citizens belongs to himself, we're removing self-government, right? For they all belong to the state and are each of them a part of the state. So make no mistake here, the status education has been and will always be designed to say this, just preached on this in last year, as for me and my house, we will serve the state. That's the whole, that's the whole reason for it. So basically getting people trained into this, this collective with the goal of a, a state that's seen as divine, you know, man needs a process to do that, a discipleship program, we'll call it. And, and that's what status education is. And that's what we find right now. So really, what do we, what do we, <laughs> what do we think the public school system, what do we think of them here today? Well, you brought up Horace Mann. Yeah, Horace Mann, John Dewey, uh, sometimes referred to as the father of modern education. Uh, they were doing just what you were talking about. They didn't see education as merely a program of educating people. They saw it as a rival religion. And um, the quote from... John Dewey was, quote, here are all the elements for a religious faith, referring to the public school, that, um, that shall not be confined to sect, class, or race. Such a faith has always been the common faith of mankind, referring to secularism. It, human, it remains for us to make it explicit and militant. And the vehicle of government schooling, compulsory education by the state, would be the vehicle for advancing that religion. And let me just tell you, they have been like fantastically successful. Yeah. You know, we look at the public schools, they're, they're a embarrassment of results in terms of learning. If you were to, I wish, you know, if this were video, I could show you, but 
if, the, if this were a graph showing the amount of investment that we put into government schools based on the results, it's a like an almost linear line straight up in terms of investment and then a flat line of results, right? right? It's, it's a terrible, uh, you know, use of funds. It's just, um, and I think the statistics were that um, 80, 88% uh, of Americans would prefer to have their child in a private school. Only 33% would prefer public school. And this is a free system, okay? I mean, quote-unquote right. free. Free. Not really free. free, obviously. But the point being, the, the issue is not that they want to do quality education. The issue is control. If they wanted to provide free uh, education to everybody, they could do that the same way they do food stamps. Do we have 25,000 grocery uh uh, government uh, grocery stores, uh, you know, around the country. No, Why, we, well, we feed the poor through food stamps. I mean, that's the that's the idea, anyways. And uh, they could essentially do the same thing with education, but they want direct control is the issue, and that's that's what um, that's why they've been so successful. And it's not like this is a surprise. Even when this was going on, you had people like A. A. Hodge, who's uh, uh, the head at Princeton uh, Princeton University at the time and famous theologian A.A. A. Hodge, and he said, quote, I am as sure as I am of Christ's reign that a comprehensive and centralized system of national education separated from religion, as is now commonly proposed, will prove the most appalling engineering for the propagation of anti-Christian and atheistic unbelief and of anti-social nihilistic ethics, individual, social, and political, which this sin-rent world has ever seen. And man, was he yeah. right on the money. Yeah. And even going back to Horace Mann, he was a, um, a Unitarian. Mm -hmm. They were big on, you know, nature gives man, um, you know, these certain rights. These rights are a right to education and so on. And one of the things Mann did early on, it's funny that you bring up Hodge because um, Hodge being a Calvinist, he would have um, understood, you know, the, the direct problem with, with Horace Mann, especially because he started with a presupposition, you know, man is essentially good. He rejected the total depravity of man. Man is essentially good. Man said that man, <laughs> Horace Mann, M-A-N-N, -N, uh, he <laughs> said that man is essentially good. And so all we need is the education of the collective. If we can work in tandem with the goodness that, you know, is just generally present there, you know, there's no discussion of ethics. There's no any of that. It's just this idea that, you know, nature gives us these certain things. And so we can, we can heal our society. We can bring unity. Um, all these clouded subjects or, or languages used, I guess you could say to, to push this common school, this public school system on America. So all, I say all that because from the very beginning of American history, uh, the issue of public schools started off on the wrong foot anyway. Absolutely. And earlier I, I cited a statistic um, and I said it wrong. The, the actual statistic is currently approximately 86% of the U.S. children, 86% um, of U.S. children attend public schools, yet only 33% of Americans in this latest national poll consider public schooling their top choice. Wow, that, that's remarkable. And of course, we have all these presuppositional arguments against public education. The no, no neutrality is 
central to understanding of that. This is the presuppositional view of education is that there's not neutral literature classes. There's not neutral mathematics classes, which could be a surprise. There's yeah. not neutral history classes, especially history. <laughs> um, but there's nothing neutral about education whatsoever. But in addition to that, as if that's not enough, and, and, and it is enough, there's this massive amount of economic waste and corruption and just the general inefficiency that comes with essentially anything that our federal government runs. Yeah, how, I mean, you, you that, that word you use, presupposition, we like that word. Yes, we do. We, we <laughs> like that word. Um, how is it that, how can Christians possibly believe that teaching knowledge, right, dispensing of information, we live in God's world, right, so we have to, we have to learn about God's world and, and we, we teach that to others. How can we possibly believe that teaching knowledge apart from fearing God, which is where the beginning of knowledge starts, Proverbs 1-7, how can we think that starting from a different presupposition, how do we not see that? How do we not see that as is producing anything other than death and destruction? And, and I think the answer is, we're talking about the doctrine of sanctification to some some degree. The the state has a doctrine of sanctification, and either it's going to be in terms of of the Holy Spirit and the outworking of God's law into every single area of life, or sanctification in terms of Aristotle. Right, the political animal is going to be remade into the image of the state, the servant of the state, um, through that education. And we live in a time when education is heavily heavily financed. They're just, ta and it's always, we could do better if we had more money. Well, more I, money. The actual statistics is that for every single public schooled student who's educated uh, kindergarten through kindergarten through high school, U.S. taxpayers spend two hundred thousand dollars for every single public student kindergarten through wow. uh, high school. That's fourteen thousand per child per year. Uh, so the annual bill for the public school system per household, whether they have children in it or not, is is five thousand five hundred fifty four dollars. So uh, if you've got four kids uh, and, you know, that's uh, we talked about fourteen thousand per year per child. If you got four kids, that's fifty four thousand per year that their education costs taxpayers. So do you know what I could do for the education of my four children for fifty four thousand dollars a year? Wow. Right? I could like just give away 80 percent of that and still like provide a massively su supremely superior education for the for my children. Yeah, it, it is so wasteful. It is such a bureaucracy and it is comical if it wasn't so thefty yeah. <laughs> that that uh, they want more money. And they're saying the problem is we need more money for education. We need more pay for teachers. We know. It's not a meritocracy. It is a bloated behemoth that is totally inefficient. It's it's just also just very like obsolete in terms of it was made, you know, intentionally to serve the state, a state which at that time needed factory workers. And so the model of the public school is basically to move people through the public schools in sort of like cattle. You know, they've, yeah. they've got their grade. It's not specialized. It's not based on what skills you have. It's all based on keeping you with your group and you just move forward and move forward. And um, it it is highly obsolete at this point. There's so many. If you look at the Khan Academy, if you look at all the free uh, at, uh, the free resources on the Internet, um, it's it's more of a daycare program now in terms of what it's needed for. You know, there's so many great resources out there that you can have that that 
and we talk about how to empower homeschooling as well. But. Right, exactly. And we should be careful as Christians and as uh, men and women who have families or will have families to not try to replicate the public schools in our home. Right, right. And, and of course, a Christian education is is obviously the goal. And you can give a Christian education by using the same structure of a public school. But don't just go to that format or that structure by default. Right. Yeah. And for our family, just a personal testimony, um, pulling our oldest was in kindergarten in a public school and he was just angry and frustrated. I mean, that that's our story. And we decided, you know, at that point, God's spirit convicted us. Wait a minute. This is, this is, this isn't right at all. Not just for our son, but the whole system. And, you know, we started understanding the socialistic nature of the public right. schools and, and, and now to see them flourish because there's this, as far as I see, we are created the image of God. We have been tasked with working and keeping the garden. And, and part of that, I believe, is this impulse towards discovery. There's this impulse that's innate within us that God created because of the need to go and expand the world, to, to, to take dominion, to take all that God has given us and fashion it into different things. And how can you possibly do that if, if that's just squelched, if you're just a drone sitting in a classroom expected to do the same thing as little Susie next to you, um, who, who maybe someday, you know, wants to design clothing. Right. So there's, there's a factor of the collectivism in the actual content of the teaching, but you could even say that there's a collectivism in the method of teaching as well. Yeah, definitely. And, and I want to just make sure we understand for our listeners who are hearing this and, and um, maybe maybe you're you know a, a staunch defender of the public school system, and I want you to know like you know for us we have theological reasons as we sort of laid out here for why we see it as basically an immoral institution. Um, there's theft involved. They're not teaching the lordship of Christ. Um, they're not starting with Him as Lord and doing math you know in light of that. Um, so no, we don't we don't want Trump's Bible literacy classes, you know, <laughs> coming, <laughs> coming in there. But, but, you know, I'm patient with you. We're patient with you. Um, but we want you to understand really, here's how I see it. The matter is easily settled. If, if we can agree that the Bible has something to say about the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the realm of education. Right. Absolutely. And, and I also want to be clear on this and I'm really glad you brought that up because you also have the, the issue of like public school teachers. You know, how right. do we deal with that? Like me personally, my mom's a public school teacher. <laughs> you know, it's like I love her to death. We obviously disagree on some matters, but I will never send my children to public education. But I still love and support Christian public school teachers, at least the ones that I know who are being as faithful as they can in a hostile environment. And of course, this has everything to do with presuppositional theology and good sound orthodoxy and understanding no neutrality uh, and of course there is no neutrality in history or literature or anything else so at the very least public education requires a great deal of unlearning and and frankly correcting it's it's a waste yeah. of time and resources and i would like to also point out that i've heard some people say well i i know some people who have gone to uh um public school and they've turned out in, into great Christians. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I mean, I, not that I'm a great 
going to point to myself as a great Christian, but I went to public school. So I'm like, yeah. so, so, but they'll point that out and they'll say, oh, but I, and I know someone who was homeschooled and he's a mess. He's just terrible. So, so you just throw up your hands like, so it doesn't matter. That's the implication, right? Because there's exceptions. These, both these anecdotes. Right. These anecdotes. But we're survivors <laughs> of public education, Jordan. We're, right. Exactly. We're, we're not the example. It's like looking at the, the Titanic and there were many survivors on the Titanic, right? Doesn't mean it was a wise choice, right? Or, right. or that's a, or that it's a safe situation. Um, so just the point is though, that there's two ditches uh, in this side. And one is to say that if you homeschool and do it the right way and, and Christian education and you do it, then your child will definitely be the best Christian ever. And there's nothing that can change that. And it's guaranteed to the bank always going to happen. It's that's like the salvation by homeschool, right? That's the one ditch. <laughs> the other ditch is to try and unlink training and godliness from because God is a God of means as we're not hyper Calvinists, right? We believe that right. God uses means and he uses our teaching to sow the gospel in them, to sow the word of God into them. And that will generally produce fruit. So generally speaking, training in righteousness does produce righteousness. Training in ungodliness does produce ungodliness. So we cannot unhitch that relationship that does exist while also we want to be also we want to be clear that there is no magic bullet that guarantees your child's salvation that it salvation is of the lord and and there are situations where even if you do a great job you know the child will not you know um will, will rebel or if you do a terrible job something will happen in the child's life and the child will uh, exhibit fruit right, right. and so uh, we just don't we just want to be careful about those arguments right jesus christ walked on this earth and we have his word and we have th this may sound bad but we god is predictable mm -hmm. and 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 i don't mean that to say that we know you know everything there is to know about god his knowledge is inexhaustible his character you know all, all of that is inexhaustible for human knowledge but he's given us his word and he tells us what things are generally the principles that you're saying jordan when we train a child in righteousness what is what is going to happen? Well, generally, that's that's what we can expect. That's the predictability. Right. right. There's yeah. a there's a level of normative expectations that we can definitely look at. And I think we all know that intuitively, even if we argue against it sometimes um, in, in our foolishness, because it's it's not as if we would believe that all we have to do is keep the child alive and make sure we feed him and give him water. And then he's going to become a good Christian because we're good Calvinists. Right. That's not how this works. Right. Yeah, and and just to encourage some of you listeners, um, we have been tasked with discipling the nations, and that can be this overwhelming thing, you know, especially as we were talking about earlier the the state of Virginia politics right now. But look, don't miss what's right in front of you. You have been given gifts from God; they are arrows in your quiver. You are to shoot them into the darkness, and the way that we do that is by training them, teaching them. Absolutely. And I think the challenge does go out to Christian parents that sacrifices may need to be made to ensure that your child is given a Christian education. Uh, I also think that the challenge goes out to pastors and to those leaders in the church. Uh, what are you doing? And we're talking about just not speaking, but also with budget, with all kinds of things, with resources, with effort, with, with uh, human capital. What are you doing to support those in your congregation who would love to provide a Christian education, but they're in a very tight spot and cannot financially or, or that kind of thing? And um, I think a lot of times, and I know some people who have moved heaven and earth, they are, they are uh, poor by anyone's definition, and they are managing to give their child a homeschool education and, and do it well. 
And that's a, that's a beautiful thing to see. But I, I think we acknowledge there are certain situations where it's extremely difficult. And so, you know, we do challenge the parents, but we also challenge our, our leaders and our churches and our pastors. What are we doing? Are we spending all of our money on buildings and salary? You know, um, and that, you know, there's there's different situations if you're a young church plant or if, if you're a long established church and you've you know you're a large church like is even a, a single percent of your budget going towards uh you know helping those who in your community who who are christians who would love to give their child a christian education but can't i think it's a great question uh, of course it's going to depend on each situation we don't want to judge all situations right. the same right. way sometimes it will be up to the individual parents and it's their failing but i think oftentimes it's the failing of the church it's the failing of the communities that they're in where they would rather spend money on the new sound system other than the uh, homeschool textbooks right. or helping out with the groceries because the mom can't have a second job. Yeah, right. we're supposed to be creating a social order and education is absolutely a part of that order. And when you have pastors who refuse to preach about it, they won't talk about it. They're not creating a culture in their community for this type of thing. It's no wonder that you have even homeschooler parents, they feel ostracized in the church. The, oh, you're that, you're that family. You're that weird family that does weird things. <laughs> and my kid goes to the public school and there's this stigma that needs to be removed in Jesus name. Amen. Um, because it's just, it's unacceptable behavior. Uh, if we are going to disciple the nations, we got to start with the nations right in front of us with the people right in front of us, your very own children. So do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Whoever, and then whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Amen. That's it. So, um, President Trump... Um, Catch me outside. How about that? <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> Dr. Phil. We don't, need, we don't need Bible literacy classes. We need to abolish government schools. Yes. Wow. So, hey, great stuff, guys. By Thanks. the way, yeah. visit... Abolish Government Schools on Facebook. Yeah. It's a wonderful Facebook page. Abolish Government Schools. Yeah. Go check it out. And while you're checking it out, make sure you visit Cross and Crown Radio. We'd love to, to hear from you. Um, if this has been a blessing, please don't hesitate to share that out there and, and tell your friends. Um, we have an interview coming up next All right. that I'm excited about. Nice. So, this. yeah, we'll be back in just a short moment. Thank you for tuning in. For a spot in the top 10, I do this for one reason. Jesus, the true king, son, to help God's elect obey Hebrews 3.1. And though the rap world is ever crowded, if heaven allows it, I'll keep writing for the 7,000. I know you out there. I still get the emails. Against the church of Christ, the gates of hell will never prevail. It's founded on the rock, and the gospel never stops. So we drop in the topic, whether it's popular or not. Sin is not how many books do you know of that address topics of education and welfare, local government, state government, taxation, money and banking, free markets, courts, war and the military, and the executive power? How many books do you know actually talk about these topics from a biblical perspective and set forth all of the issues, the ideas, the history, and the hurdles, and the blueprints for the way forward? Hi, I'm Joel McDermott with AmericanVision.org. In Restoring America One County at a Time, I cover all these topics and more, showing you how America was once free, how those freedoms were lost, and giving you an uncompromising biblical approach to get those freedoms back. I focus on practical steps, local solutions, personal sacrifices, and it has a multi-generational vision. So don't just sit around talking about Restoring America. Actually do something. 
And you can start by getting my book, Restoring America One County at a Time, at AmericanVision.org. Welcome back to Cross and Crown Radio. Um, I'm really excited. This is our third episode, and it is also our very first interview. And uh, with us today is Reverend Mark Rushduni. Thank you so much for being on Cross and Crown Radio. It's good to be here. With us today is Reverend Mark Rushduni, publisher and Chalcedon president. Mark succeeded his father, R.J. Rushduni, as president of Chalcedon in 1998. He oversees Chalcedon's publishing arm of Christian Reconstruction literature under the banner of Chalcedon Ross House Books and Storehouse Press. Mark has ensured that his father's works remain in print and remains committed to publishing the remaining unpublished works. He manages the Chalcedon ministry and preaches at Chalcedon Chapel in Vallecito, California. Reverend Mark, it's so great to have you here. I know that just speaking on behalf of all three of us, we've all been beneficiaries of the work that you're doing at Chalcedon, the work that your father did. And uh, like I said, we're very much beneficiaries of that and so excited to have you here and honored really to have you here. So thanks for being here. I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, coming from a, a historical perspective, if we look at the topic that your father covered in his book, The Messianic Character of American Education, what was the original purpose, once we get into public education, what was the original purpose of that, and what were the origins of the modern public education system? Well, the, the modern public education system has really developed over a, a long period of time, and it has been different in different periods of, of history. Uh, originally, the first education laws required that there be schools in every community, but they didn't necessarily require any particular type of schools, and this varied as these laws um, began to multiply in different areas, but different areas had different requirements, and it was the compulsory education laws that were originally directed at communities that became compulsory education laws, which have today been used uh, directed at parents. And, and, and basically, they've assumed, rather than originally requiring that the opportunity of education be made available, they're now being required, that, uh, it's basically assuming the role of a parent and saying, your child must be educated, which was not originally a problem. In fact, in, in uh, colonial America, when these laws started, uh, there was uh, a very high literacy rate. And uh, the, the, it's a myth that uh, early America had a lot of uneducated individuals. Hmm. Um, Jefferson said in, eight, in 1800 that there was a very high literacy rate and America had the highest of any of the, the developed nations. Wow. Uh, the examples of illiteracy that are sometimes given are really the remote pioneers. As people moved westward, sometimes it was more difficult, and the demands for survival uh, were such that sometimes education 
was not only was not always practical. There were more immediate concerns, but that was not typical. And usually, as communities developed educational um, opportunities in different ways, uh, began to be offered because Americans highly valued education because Americans were always well read. Mm. Mm-hmm. But the 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 link to with compulsory education laws that the link of the state was really was an assumed one and it grew gradually. The state was gradually assumed to have the authority over education rather than the parent. And that took a time to develop. It didn't it wasn't all at once. You know, you've all heard the example, you know, when people say the government should do something. Right. Um, people today don't really have the concept of delegated powers and that we want to limit government. And as that has developed, it was just seen as the natural prerogative of government to control something as important as education. A few years back, I think it was in the early months of the Obama administration, I don't recall, I wish I could have a, get an exact uh, uh, phrasing of it, but I remember listening to a news report. Someone from the Obama administration was defending a particular action, and the question was to the effect of, you know, what jurisdiction does the government have? And the answer given was the government has the... Uh, authority to do it because it is in the nature of government to do this. Wow. Hmm. See, a purely statist rationale that it needs to be done, therefore it's the nature of the government that uh, they can do it. There's no concept there of delegated powers. Well, as, as, as the states began, got more involved in education, it was assumed that by many... Uh, without legislation, that they had total jurisdiction. And that's where a lot of the 20th century conflict came in when Christian schools came around. Uh, the public school authorities assumed they had jurisdiction over all education within their districts. Or the state assumed that it had total jurisdiction. And that was that resulted in a lot of legal action uh, sometimes very brutal, sometimes children being taken out of homes. But see, for a status at heart, we look to the state as the authority, and a lot of the people had, were so ingrained in the idea of statism that they assumed that the state had to have jurisdiction. So any challenge to the state was a thoroughly lawless act. But originally, the, what we call public schools were very locally controlled. Now, from an economic model, that was still a rather socialistic um, model, but the control was very local. The control by the state came gradually, and that was really a methodology adopted by the progressives. They, they recognized that education was central to their goal, and controlling children was central to their goal, so they began... Uh, they were they were they were future oriented, hmm. and you have to credit them with that. They knew that they had to control education to control the future, and they did a good job of it. And they began with things like teacher training and requiring um, a state certificate 
the accreditation for a teaching credential. Um, That's definitely they, the opposite of today's mindset in the church, isn't it? <laughs> Having that future orientation. It is. It's sometimes um, we're put to shame. It's like uh, the uh, high priest who, who went to Pilate and said that he, Jesus claimed that he would rise again, let's guard the tomb, and the disciples were shocked when Jesus rose from that head. They, mm. they, they were a little more future-oriented than, than the disciples at that point, and I think that tends to be uh, a problem uh, in yeah. the church, we don't really believe in the total depravity of man. Mm. So trust man with, with power, and man always abuses power. And certainly the power over education has been uh, one of the greatest abuses of the modern state. So when we, fa- and thank you for providing that fascinating insight into the history of how the public schools developed, that, that was truly fascinating. As now we fast forward to sort of the the public school system, as we call it, government school system that we have today, what makes it such an obstacle to the long-term advance of Christendom? As we just sort of talked about having a future-oriented, we're trying to sort of reclaim that future-oriented view of history going forward. Can, can, can public schools as they stand today be reformed, say, by putting prayer back into the schools? You know, what if we get schools to teach creationism or have a Bible class and those sorts of things? Can you help us with that? Well, back in the 60s, there was still debate about putting prayer back in the public schools and bumper stickers when they had bumper stickers on cars. Uh, would, <laughs> would state put For years, you saw those put prayer back in the public schools, even though there was no real effort by, by politicians to do it. And my father is a very much a believer in Christian education, was very much against it. That was kind of how, how Christians were, were thinking at the time. Let's just put a Band-Aid on a bad court decision, and then we'll fix the, the public schools if we could just have prayer. And my, my father said, why would we want these people who are indoctrinating our children in another worldview to actually be teaching them how to pray? Mm-hmm. That's, so, and that's just hit news again with uh, President Trump's comments about Bible literacy, getting that back in the school system. Yeah, we mentioned that earlier. We were talking about how Donald Trump had sort of introduced this notion that we need to get a Bible class going in the public schools. And, you know, you get some some in some Christian quarters anyways, get really excited about that kind of thing. Well, when I was in, well, let's say 30, 40 years ago, they were introducing some Bible Classes in as in the, in the public school systems as uh, Bible as literature, uh, but the, but the, one of the problems with that was the Bible was not viewed as the Word of God. Right. See, that wasn't allowed. It was the Bible as literature, and it was put on the same level as what they were getting in English literature, mm-hmm. American literature classes. Yeah. So um, the, the the problem is they're they're teaching a whole different worldview, and the worldview of the public school is very much at odds with a, a Christian worldview. Uh, education is is religious by nature. One, you mentioned in my father's book, uh, the Messianic Character of American Education. Mm-hmm. It's a good title, and because that is what 
the public schools are about. They're a different way of saving man, and they're going to save man by making him into the kind of citizen that they want to see. And that is not a free-thinking individual. It's not someone who believes in individual liberty. It's someone who has a group think. And the school's Mm -hmm. been very successful at group think. And it's that's why it's it's very sad when we see public school students expressing political views. And you know it's exact same uh, political views as they've been indoctrinated with throughout their entire schooling. Absolutely. And it's very left-wing in its orientation. And sometimes it takes people many, many years to even realize that they've been indoctrinated. Right. A lot of Christians who grew up in public schools, they, you know, 20 and 30 years later, they're still realizing the extent to which they were manipulated oh, in their yeah. youth through their education. Right. It's because like the, it is, the frog boiling in a pot of water sort of effect. Right. Well, today in our world, you know, we have on the positive side a, a very nice homeschooling movement that is sort of. Uh, going along very well, actually. But before I got into that a little more, uh, I don't think many people know about your father, the degree of impact he had on the homeschooling movement. You know, for all the things that people know about your father, about R.J. Rush Juni, uh, I think actually that is a part that sort of gets actually underemphasized is the impact that he had, and specifically in the realm of homeschooling. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, Reverend Rush Jr., would you mind just sort of laying out for us a little bit of that history of of how your father was instrumental in those early days in the 60s of uh, fighting those early battles for the homeschooling movement? Well, my father, um, his his first book in the late 50s was... uh, about the presuppositional thinking. It was really, it's called By What Standard? It was about the thinking of uh, Cornelius Van Til, presuppositionalism. And, and his idea about presuppositionalism said that we have to think as Christians, we have to think in terms of the revelation of God to us. And so it's a self-consciously Christian way of thinking. Well, his next two books were on, on education because public education also has a way of directing thought. And it has been directing thought in a very humanistic way, a very Darwinian way. Uh, A lot of the progressives were were very much uh, believers in uh, Pavlov and conditioning. And they realized that if they had the, the, you know, control of the child's education, they would be remaking society because that was really the goal of the progressives. Their Mm. goal of education was not education. It was to create the kind of citizen they believed was necessary moving forward. That's crucial. Future. And it's a huge difference. And if we look at what the public school has produced, that's, they have been creating a certain type of citizen Mm -hmm. and we're suffering for it. Uh, now, well, um, so his first two books, the first was Intellectual Schizophrenia. The second was The Messianic Character of American Education. In that second book, he went into how these, he examined, he went into the archives at the Stanford Library, and he 
pulled out a lot of these obscure educational journals that nobody really read much of. And he saw the philosophy and and where their thinking was coming from and where it was going and what they were trying to do with the public schools. And he wrote about that. Well, when a lot of people saw this and his call for distinctly Christian education, they started Christian day schools in the 60s. And then in the 70s and beyond, the homeschool movement came about. One of the reasons the homeschool came, movement came about, I think, uh, is that the, the movement to Christian day schools was very well intended, and some some real good came of it, particularly in, in the early years. But it was a bad economic model because it just borrowed the economic model of the public school, which was always subsidized. It was very difficult for the Christian day school um, to financially make a go of it. And it usually required that they have the inexpensive use of Sunday school rooms from a church or something. But that became increasingly difficult for parents to pay tuition, especially if they had multiple children. Well, so the homeschool movement just grew suddenly. It grew so rapidly that um, it was big before it really gained the attention of the authorities. There's, there's an interesting side story to that. Here in California, the, at the state superintendent of education at the time was a man by the name of Bill Honig, and he decided he was going to quash homeschooling. So uh, something was you know, sent out basically saying that uh, homeschooling is not legal in the state of California. <laughs> and he got such blowback from that immediately, and he found out that a lot of these people that were homeschooling weren't necessarily Christians. A lot of them were liberals. Ah. Um, they were free-thinking, you know, kind of the new age kind of... They were all over the landscape, and they were livid at him. And... He immediately blamed this all on subordinates. Mm. The, the funny um, postscript to that was both he and his wife, I think, went to jail later on for corruption because he was feeding her company uh, state business. <laughs> but um, my father began largely, it became really serious during Jimmy Carter's administration and it continued into the 80s that states local uh, school districts, um, one government agency or another was going after Christian schools. Sometimes it was zoning laws saying, oh, you don't have to, you know, your church isn't zoned to have a school or, your, or it was accreditation. Your teachers in your Christian school have to be accredited or you have to meet this requirement or that requirement. Death Basically, by some bureaucracy. Right. Some, 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 in some way, you have to be under our jurisdiction, and you haven't met it. Therefore, you're illegal. And so there were all kinds of Christian liberty cases. Many of them involved Christian education, not all. But there was a real attempt to basically restrict Christianity to Sunday morning church services, and to deny them the, the right to use their facilities and the and their their right to exercise their religion in other 
areas, such as educating the children. And so my father was began be call, being called as an expert witness, and he was allowed as an expert witness in some of these cases because he had degrees in uh, education. Uh, he had a teach, lifetime teaching credential. He had served on a school board uh, early in his ministry uh, when he was in Nevada, and uh, he had written books on education. So the court allowed him as an expert witness. Once one court allows you as an expert witness, others tend to do it. So he was kind of on call whenever there was a problem. Can you come testify um, as to the Christian position on this um, and whether this is a, a you know, is education really a, a religious function and is it a matter of freedom of religion? And so he began testifying at a lot of these cases and. Uh, the, the most important one was called the Leaper case, and it was in Texas. And interestingly enough, the Leaper case was when a Christian attorney, Shelby Sharp, persuaded a group of parents to become proactive and to sue the state for infringing on their religious liberties and attempting to misuse you know, legislation. And he asked my father to come as an expert witness, and he had some other expert witnesses, which basically accomplished nothing mm-hmm. on the stand. And uh, it's a it's a long story, and I'll try to be brief on it. But um, whenever an attorney faces a, a um, the opposition's expert witness, he wants to discredit the witness in some way. One of the ways in which my father was sometimes discredited was they would ask him, uh, do, you be- do you believe in evolution? And, you know, do you believe the world is about 6,000 years old? Do you believe it was made in six days? And basically to bel- belittle him, say, and, and one mm-hmm. attorney w- once said, look, you do acknowledge that most of the scientists in the world believe the world is millions or billions of years old. And my father said, yes. And he asked him, again, he's trying to make him look foolish. Uh, Why is it that you don't agree with all these scientists that the world is millions or billions of years old? And my father said, I don't have that much faith. And the courtroom, (laughs) you know, erupted into laughter. And the attorney who asked the question asked the judge for uh, a little bit of help. And the judge says, well, you asked the question. (laughs) Well, in any way, the way that the attorney wanted to discredit my father in the Leaper case was he wanted to get him to discuss Texas history and to show that he doesn't know anything about Texas history or Texas law. And he began talking about Texas history and asking me questions about it. And my father began correcting him on his knowledge of Texas history. (laughs) That's not a fight that you should really get into. And the judge was just fascinated (laughs) by Uh. this. And um, to make a long story short, my father basically said, 
you know, described, you know, the problems in Texas and the terrible roads that existed in many years. And you couldn't even make it to the Capitol during parts of the year when it was rainy because the roads weren't good. So the idea that the that children could go to a, a, a school for a, their education and that the compulsory educational law had to involve right. private schools and homeschooling and that many children never were able to leave the ranch for long periods yeah, uh, so in the wintertime. The discreditor became discredited. Right. And the judge ruled in favor of the parents. It was appealed um, to a multi-judge court, and uh, it was upheld on the appeals, and the Texas Supreme Court unanimously upheld the judge's decision in favor of the parents. Mm-hmm. That was such – in fact, it was so, it was so heavily tilted um, against the state at that point, and all the decisions were unanimous that they, the state didn't appeal it. And that so is praise God for became that. Became legal in Texas, and that big of a jurisdiction. A lot of the other prosecutions then, but that by that time, by the time it went through the appeals process, I think you were into the '90s, and they basically started giving up on prosecuting. Some states still vary because some states won victories that uh, other states did not win, so it, it varies. But even in California, we have a very liberal homeschooling law. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the laws that we enjoy, especially those in Texas, still still sort of go back to those earlier decisions that your father was was party to. And I actually remember that I've seen this digression before. I can't remember right now where I saw it, but I, I saw, I read, I guess it was a transcript between, I think it's available somewhere, where this lawyer was going back and forth with your father and just being amazed and and, and seeing exactly what you were just describing. It was incredible to behold. So I, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So with all the labors that, you know, you, your father has put in and then others have put in since and, and you are continuing that you know, at Calcedon, are, you know, continuing that legacy in education. And we look at sort of the outcome today. What are your prospects in, or what, what is your view of the prospects of homeschooling moving forward into the future? Do you believe that the homeschooling movement is going to continue to grow as it has been? I... Um I would hope so. I think it's good. I'm not. Uh, some people defend Christian day schools and think homeschoolers are somewhat lawless and uh, un- poorly educated, and some and homeschoolers often condemn all Christian schools as, as hopelessly compromised and wishy-washy. Um, I believe in both if they're good. Um, I do believe the homeschool. Homeschooling is good if people can do it, but I also believe in in, in specialization. Sure. So I, I certainly believe in, in Christian day schools as well, even though, like I said, economically they're a more difficult model to, to maintain. So you want to die on the uh, hill of a, a particular method. Uh, right. It's just the foundation has to be intrinsically uh, Christian. The whole worldview has to be Christian. It's not really a matter of... Right. Christian school or Christian day school or homeschooling, it just has to be Christian at its foundation. Right. And, and most, our best education is really self-education. One of the things that the public schools now do self-consciously, they don't want children reading at a, at a young age. And they discourage parents from teaching their children to read. 
And in fact, I've known several instances where children have gone to the public school knowing how to read, and they're basically pushed off into a corner because they're too advanced. (laughs) And they won't advance them into another grade because that's against their socialization um, uh, prejudices. And so I know one, one student that knew how to read when she went to school, and she was pushed off into a corner to play by herself, and she basically forgot how to read. And then she ended up behind. Incredible. So wow. the, the public educators didn't want people reading until they were ready to teach them because they didn't want – they knew that if you could learn to read, you will become an independent thinker. And that's what's most important is to create independent thinkers. And very little that goes on in school is really essential. We, you know, we try to cover the bases and such. But essentially, uh, um, what you need is you need to you basically it's a reading, writing, and arithmetic. And if you have those school those skills, you will be prepared to continue to educate yourself for the rest of your life. As we sort of so uh, it, it's not a real cohesive movement. Uh, the early years of Christian uh, uh, homeschooling, there was a lot of communication and cohesiveness amongst those who were involved. Homeschool conventions were huge. It's now somewhat disjointed. I think the the most unfortunate thing is that in many jurisdictions, the public schools have gotten into the homeschool movement, and they're actually will issue you payment for yep. certain things and give you a computer, and um, they'll pay for your books and so forth. They see what's going on, right? Exactly. It's funding. It's also funding the public schools because. There's very little cost involved, and they're actually getting more money from the state than they're issuing out. So they're actually we're actually helping fund the public schools um, by doing that. Absolutely, that actually reminds me what our friend uh, Dr. Joel McDermott always says: is don't take the cheese. There's always going to be stipulations. Yeah, once you once right. you agree to their regulations, uh, then you're on the hook for everything else. Yeah, one, one compromise is eventually going to lead to another compromise. It's the same thing when we talk about abortion. It's all funneled down to collectivism wants more collectivism. All right. So as we sort of zoom out and look at sort of the, the macro situation in, in the church, and this will be the last question, but in the church, even the evangelical world, I believe the figures are still somewhere around 90% of homes of uh, families uh, have their children attending public schools. And I'm not sure what it is in the reformed world, probably something less than that. Uh, As we sort of zoom out and look at the, you know, as is the church, is the church able to hang on to that next generation? Is the church able to train up that next generation? Yet here we are just sending child after child off into Egypt to be trained in a worldview that it intentionally sets aside the word of God in the schooling of a child. Uh, why is it, in your view, that in the pulpits, broadly speaking anyways, across the United States, that either they do not see the problem of this mass public school education system and the effect that it has generationally on, on uh, sort of uh, keeping children in the faith, and why is it that the pulpit seems so 
reticent to speak on this subject from the pub from the pulpit? Well, they they you you correctly identified the situation, and it's always been that way. When my father began speaking to churches in the '60s about this, they were they were sometimes just livid at him. They thought he was being un-American for attacking the public schools, mm. and um, they just thought he was something of a goofball. Um, now it's harder to to uh, disagree with the essence of what he said, but they still haven't changed their positions. Mm-hmm. They're still basically ignoring the issue of public schools. They might say they're bad, but... Uh, we still have the same idea. Well, we have to be missionary. Children have to be missionaries, and, and nonsense like that. I think there, there are a number of reasons. Part of it is the church is most churches have very limited budgets, and they barely have enough to pay a pastor. And the churches are afraid that if we make a demand on uh, you know, we're going to lose all those public school students, or most of them, and therefore we're basically going to cease to exist. So part of it, I think, is an institutional, practical um, thing. But even religiously, I think a, a lot of the uh, Christian churches are, are dualistic in their thinking, and that is they believe that there's a... Uh, the ways of this world, and there's this higher spiritual way, and they want to limit Christianity and the kingdom of God to this higher spiritual realm. And matters of this world are um, uh, like education, and it is just a a part of the the things of this world that we have to endure. We're just poor wayfaring strangers, Mm -hmm. and that, that we need to just preach the gospel and attend to people's spiritual needs in, in the church. And so that, you know, dualism has just been a problem in the church uh, for a long time. And um, I, I think this is a, it, it's an ongoing problem. It's the worse things get, the, the more serious people have to get. And, and there has been a tremendous amount of progress. In fact, I, have, I consider Christian education as one of the bright spots in the area's real progress. And, you know, it's true. Uh, I have seen some statistics, I can't quote them offhand, that say that uh, a number of uh, second-generation students don't homeschool their own kids. Um, They they just won't do it. Uh, Maybe they had some unpleasant experiences because, let's face it, the last 30, 40 years have kind of been pioneering in this work. and A lot of us just didn't know how to do it very well. And so it was frustrating for, for the children. A lot of them don't want to just, just don't want to go through that. Um, but the finances of the kingdom at this point are that uh, we don't have too many other options. And I think there has been real progress. There's a whole different attitude, I think, in many circles today. And there has been real progress that didn't exist when my father wrote Messianic Character of American Education in 1963. Questioning public education back then was questioning an American institution. Mm. You know, it was apple pie, part of apple pie and baseball. You just you didn't say it was was uh, in any way unChristian. 
Well, that's it for us. Thank you, Reverend Rush Judy, for taking the time. Um, how can people get in touch touch with you, a website they can visit? Our website is uh, calcedon.edu. It's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N, calcedon.edu. Yeah, thank you. Make sure listeners... Extensive. There yeah. are extensive resources on there and huge archives. Yeah, it's been a blessing. I know for all of us to to uh, read read a lot of those books. We've absolutely. Been, we've I'm been there blessed. all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, hey, that's it for us here at Cross and Crown Radio. Um, if you want to visit our page, you can go to Facebook and check out Cross and Crown Radio. And also remember, in your prayers and giving, you can go to CrossCrownChurch.com/give to support the work of Cross and Crown Church. And uh, that's it for us. Until next time, um, Jesus is King. Amen. 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 Cheers. In the classroom.